1: Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Adam McNeil, co-host of the channel. On today's episode, I am interviewing the great Dr. Claudrina Harold, author of When Sunday Comes, Gospel Music and the Soul and Hip Hop Errors, published in 2020 by the University of Illinois Press. This is a long one. But hey, when you have a topic like gospel music to chop it up about, you got to take your time. Enjoy, family. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Harold. How are you doing today? I'm great. Good, good, good. Well, hey, you know, I'm so glad that you're on the podcast here today because, you know, When Sunday Comes has been a, a book that I've been, you know, as I've said before with other people, the streets have been waiting for this. The the, the, the the streets has been waiting for this. And so I'm super duper glad that you're here today to talk about this amazing book. Um, and so as I said in my subject heading, it is interview time in the sanctuary. <laughs> let's go and let's get into it. So um, can you tell us about the Genesis story behind When Sunday Comes?
2: Sure. So uh, When Sunday Comes tells the story of gospel music's uh, commercial growth and sonic evolution during the last three decades of the 20th century. Um, It highlights, you know, the brilliant innovations of some of gospel's biggest stars, uh, the centrality of black controlled institutions and gospel's growth and uh, the complex and often contradictory political messages. Uh, within black sacred music as a child music was my sanctuary and I developed a deep love for gospel music uh, doing no small part to the centrality that it had in my family and so I would say the genesis of this book was my childhood um, I always listened to gospel music I religiously purchased the records of my favorite artists. I devoured Billboard magazine and a lot of the gospel magazines. And um, it was just a central component of my life. When I think about my time uh, in Philadelphia, I recall the nights that I would spend with my teammates where we would just listen to my temple teammates where we would just listen to music and we listened to all kinds of music. There was no sacred or secular divide, but invariably there would be, <laughs> you know, this moment where we would just, you know, listen to gospel. And so we would play, you know, commission and the whinings and, take sits. And, um, of course, Kirk Franklin, early Kirk Franklin early and, uh, well, he had just come out really. Um, and so, um, it was always a part of me, uh, but I got to grad school and I was working on Garveyism and black nationalism. And, uh, but I was always reading about popular music. And so I think around 2012, a started a magazine uh, <laughs> called Fire.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: uh, they asked me, Daryl, Scott asked me to write something. And I wrote on the Winans and the Clark sisters and commission and sort of gospel out of Detroit. And it was so weird. Like I can vividly remember being uncomfortable typing Jesus for the first time. <laughs> like, Ooh, <laughs> this is
0: different. Yep, um, yep.
2: And so I think one of the things that you battle with or at least I battled with, was gospel music was such a passion for me, and it was such a part of my interior life. I didn't know if I wanted to share that with the rest of the world. And so I think from 2012 until around 2015, 16, I was sort of making that decision. And then I made that decision. It's like, okay, I'm going to write a book about uh, gospel and write about some of my favorite artists and some of my favorite albums and how the albums sparked intense debates about blackness and politics and religiosity and all of that stuff. So um, the genesis of the work was was definitely um my childhood but it bears the imprint of all the stages of my life.
1: Outstanding outstanding and so it's it's incredible because your book is a is a tour de force about you know, can, you know, about gospel music in, in the last really, uh, 50 to well, about 60 years. And mm-hmm. so it, it, it was, um, it was a, it was a learning experience for me. And also, um, you know, I, I, I could, I can imagine you, you writing, you know, when you say writing Jesus seems like, <laughs> Oh wait, uh, you know, this is, this is a little new here, right? right. You know, might've written in a journal, but like, you know, for something that's more publicly consumed. Um, but, but before we get too, too far into the interview here, uh, to ground some of our listeners, because I know that not everyone is necessarily going to know this particular, um, history, although, you know, we've largely had it in the background in certain ways it's a lot of, uh, black folks, but, um, can you discuss the difference between contemporary Christian music and gospel music? And, you know, because I I think that grounding our listeners in that particular difference will be uh, really generative for the rest of our discussion here.
2: Yeah. So within Christian music, there has always been these denominational and racial divides. And when we say gospel music, Most of us are thinking Mahalia Jackson, Thomas Dorsey, James Cleveland, um, the Clark sisters, so Kirk Franklin. So when we say gospel music, we are often thinking about a form of uh, Christian music um, whose primary fan base um, and architects were African-American, rooted in the blues, rooted in jazz, rooted in soul. Um, contemporary Christian music is a genre that really emerges in the 1960s and 1970s, and it is predominantly white. Um, it is heavily influenced by um, rock as well as pop. Its main architects are people like Larry Norman and Keith Green and the great Andre Kraut. Mm. And so contemporary Christian music is really its own genre. It rose uh, to popularity during the Jesus movement. Um, it had its own radio stations, its own magazines like contemporary Christian music, and it had also its own record labels. So within that genre, um, there were labels that didn't have African-American artists until the late 70s or the, the 1980s. And so yeah. when I say gospel music, I'm thinking about sort of a more black African-American art form. And when I say contemporary Christian music, I'm talking about a, um, a historically specific genre that emerges in the 1960s and 1970s and is predominantly white. That does not mean that there haven't been African-Americans who didn't cross over into that genre. People like Andre Crouch, who is really a leading architect of that dr- dr- genre and the praise and worship style that comes out of that genre. But also people like Leon Petillo, um Denise Williams, who's popular within that context, and also later people like B.B. and C.C. Wines and Tate Sins.
1: And so before we got on here, you, you discussed your your enjoyment and your love for uh, the process, you know, as not as much, you know, correction, you really enjoy the process as opposed to just simply like the product, right? To make sure I got your, your words there correctly. So can you discuss with us in terms of how the process of making when Sunday comes, can you discuss that a little more about how, how you did that? And also... For something like this, as, as as you know, as as a Negro who does stuff for the 18th century, uh, my people ain't alive, so uh, oral history ain't exactly what I do. Uh, more of like a memory project, or anything. So, can you discuss any oral history um, interviews you you might have conducted for the for the book as well?
2: Sure. Um, yeah, it's always interesting when you do history and the people are not alive, and that I mean the people are alive, and so they can talk back to you. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so that was even different for me moving from gospel to, uh, moving from the Garvey movement to gospel. I wanted to tell the story of gospel music's commercial growth and sonic evolution. I wanted to tell the story of those major gospel records that people played on the radio or listened to on the radio that folk, um, performed in church, um, and 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 that also shifted the genre. And so one of the first decisions that I had to make was who were some of the artists that I wanted to focus on. And so I knew I wanted to sort of tell a wanted to tell a collective biography, or make this a collective biography. So move from say James Cleveland and Andre Crouch and Shirley Caesar to um, Kurt Franklin and Yolanda Adams. Um, at the same time, I wanted to have a historically grounded. Uh, narrative that situated the music within a larger political um, and social context. I wanted to tell the story of how gospel music reflected some of the political tensions of the Black Power Movement. It reflected some of the political tensions of the rise of the Christian right and the moral majority. And so I knew that I had to engage with newspapers and um, with major music publications, so I really immersed myself in, in that literature of the time. So reading every album review that I could, reading every um, newspaper um, article or Ebony and Jet, mag- you know, magazine article, um, reading all the biographies that some of these artists had written. So quite a few, like Shirley Caesar and 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 um, and Kirk Franklin, had written uh, biographies. Um, also going back to notes that I had from the nineties when I had encounters with some of these artists and I won't name all of these artists, but I was a, I was a music hand that always went to, um, gospel concerts. Um, and in 2016, I started going to the gospel music workshop of America. And so people like Fred Hammond, uh, Richard Smallwood, um, a lot of the founding members of the Gospel Music Workshop of America, they were there. And so I would go to different things and I would ask questions. Um, and so the interviews were somewhat informal. Um, I'm so glad that I took great notes in my in, in other capacities. Um, but at the same time, I did not want to always rely on the recollections of the artist about a particular moment, mm. because one of the things that I discovered was that there were sometimes contradictions in memory. So I'll, I'll say it like this. If somebody came out with an artist an, an album in 1978 and you listen to that album and you think it is groundbreaking, you think it's brilliant, but it didn't sell well. And I won't name the artist but how that person talked about that album in 2016 or 2017 was not the same way that they talked about that album in 1978. So part of your Mm -hmm. job is to balance their memory, their recollections, their understandable frustration. So one of the things that we also should recognize is that when an album doesn't do well, when an artist has certain economic hardships associated with a certain period, they sometimes don't want to talk about that. And so uh, part of my job, part of my responsibility was to have as diverse primary sources as possible and to rely on my own reading of those primary sources um, to do that. So I relied on interviews that I conducted and I also interviewed fans, record owners, and uh, gospel um, record store owners. It was very important for me to tell this holistic um, story of the music. And so I also relied on oral histories that were in archives. And so, for example, like at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, they have a Southern history oral collection. And in the 70s, they interviewed African-Americans who had been tobacco workers and who worked at um and meyer one of those tobacco workers was um hallie caesar the, the the mother of shirley caesar wow and there's audio of that but there's also a 10 page um you know a 10 page transcript and so i was very fortunate to um also find just some amazing stuff in the archives um from the University of North Carolina to Indiana University. Indiana University has the most amazing music um, archive that there is when it comes to African-Americans, particularly African-American music. The work of Portia Malsby and Melanie Burnham is just amazing. So I spent some time there. And they also have um, gospel music magazines that um, you can't find anywhere else. Fortunately, I was a collector of gospel magazines, so I still had stuff from the 1980s that I collected as like a 10, 11, and 12-year-old. So, wow. um and a lot of VHS tapes, uh, a lot of video soul interviews. <laughs> so, um it was a it was a mixed method. Yeah.
1: No, that's incredible. And and, and I know that our listeners are very very interested to know how how this ha- all happened. You know, because, you know, you you lay down for, for the people. So we, we appreciate that. Um, and so can you also discuss, too, um, going back into the process a little bit? Um, you know, I, I don't know if you know this, Dr. Harold, but uh, you're one of the most prolific scholars in the game. I, I don't know if you know. I I, I don't know. I think you, you might. Uh, but let me tell you, you, you are. So I know folks, once again, are going to be interested in hearing your answer uh, to this question. So in terms of constructing When Sunday Comes, what did your writing process and or /or practice consist of? And or um, since, you know, since our last book that you were here to discuss, Charlottesville 2017, was there any change in your process in in this time as well between your last edited volume and this uh, single authored book?
2: It's interesting. Um, I could have... I couldn't have written Charlottesville 2017 or probably survived the aftermath without gospel music. Mm. So one of my most vivid memories was the first day of class um, in the fall semester of 2017. And I had been relatively calm for um, most of the time, but I never forget coming on grounds, coming on campus and uh, I could hear the echoes of the white supremacists sort of in my head. Mm. And it's the first day of class. I'm teaching labor history, you know, and I know I have to hold it together for my students. And I remember reaching into my book bag and grabbing my iPod and um, listening to gospel music. And in that moment, only James Cleveland and Aretha Franklin <laughs> would do. Mm. And so, um, the music had always been with me. Um, and so actually I was working on the gospel book while I was also trying to put together that volume. Um, and I never forget the first major event, which was, um, sponsored by the history department. And I had to give a talk on African-Americans at UVA in the post-civil rights era. And I would never forget a first year student um, said, how do black people have faith? Mm. How do black people maintain faith? You know, or to ask that James Cone question, you know, what keeps black people, why do black people continue to pray when theologians say that prayer is useless? And gospel music helped me sort of navigate some of that and so the writing process was about first of all making sure that i communicated the importance of this music and the deep meaning that this music holds for people and to select a group of artists and i know folks some folks not gonna like like why you talked about this person and not that person you
0: know Mm -hmm. um
2: but to select a group of artists that i felt was were central to the story and it's a story that I wanted to tell couldn't be told without them. What I mean is no Andre Crouch probably the trajectory of Walter Hawkins career in the 70s and the 80s is different. He facilitates him signing with Light Records and releasing Love Alive. No I, no 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 Walter Hawkins no a lot of other stuff. Yep. No Andre Crouch maybe it takes a little longer for the Winans to get a record deal. Um, no BBNCC Winans, maybe Sparrow is not as willing to take chances on other artists. I mean, there are artists, no Kurt Franklin, things are different. So there are artists who have so much commercial success that they transform the possibilities for others.
0: Mm-hmm. There are
2: also artists who are so innovative in what they're doing. They transform the art form. No, James Cleveland, I'm not talking to you right now.
1: You're not talking
2: about a gospel book. And so at the same time, I wanted to tell the story of artists who, okay, BBNCC, Kurt Franklin, these are the successes of crossover. Well, what about an artist who's also hugely successful, Vanessa Bell Armstrong, but has a different crossover story? So I wanted to use particular artists and particular groups to tell a larger story. I wanted to use Al Green to move away from just Al Green and the Grits incident. And that's why he started singing gospel and tell the story about how no gospel provided him with a certain aesthetic space, a certain artistic space to embrace. I think that Southern soul that, um, he articulated in his other music, but, as the industry was changing in the late '70s, it was it was a lot harder. So, um, so for me, the writing process was deciding who you were going to write about, which albums you were going to focus on. So that was very important to me. Like I wanted to talk about gospel albums the same way people talked about Bob Dylan albums and Stevie Wonder albums. So I wanted it. T- I wanted to write like a music critic. I wanted to write from a perspective of a gospel fan who was and is often frustrated when I see greatest albums of all time and you never see gospel albums on there.
0: Yep, yep.
2: And so I wanted to also take, and this may come from like just working in film now, I wanted to take the art seriously. So sometimes I would spend just a week writing on one song. Like Tremaine Hawkins, Going Up Yonder, or the Hawkins, you know, mm-hmm. I spent like two weeks just trying to write about that and also just listening to her sing and trying to write it down. And it was difficult because I don't know music theory. And so I had some insec- I had a lot of insecurities about that, like not knowing certain technical aspects of music. But I wanted to describe the music. I wanted to describe what she was doing with her voice. I didn't want it to be just kind of this essentialist reading of Man, black people can sing. <laughs> you know, it's just like, you know, which is I'm not gonna say, you know, I want it to be descriptive. And so part of the writing process was just listening to things over and over again, going to the archives, thinking about what people said about those songs, figuring out who's playing on the song. So you can't talk about like the Hawkins and not talk about, you know, Joel Smith and his bass work and his work as a drummer. So it was also about including a session. And then to also talk about the debates, Mm. you know, to talk about the debates of how people responded to Kirk Franklin or the Winans, and to talk about the ways in which those debates had continuities and discontinuities, and how it revealed the way, and what it revealed about um, not just religion, but also about race, questions around authenticity. And so that was really, that was the process, doing the research, selecting the artists, Going back and doing more research, writing the writing process, really trying to talk about, provide a background of the people, but also talking about the songs and taking the art seriously. Um, talking about songs that had great commercial success, but also talking about songs that are central to our worship experience, you know, um, as say Christians, right? So, songs that shape homegoing services. Mm. Songs that shape weddings. Um, songs that, if someone performs well, you know, oh, she can sing.
1: <laughs> you know, and, 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 <laughs> no, and notice, folks, she didn't say sing; she said sang. Let, sing, let, right? let, let, let that be known, right. listeners.
2: And that's important, you know. That's what that that's what maintains the culture. You know, it's not just about record buying. It's not just about just radio play, but it's also about the ways in which this music. Integrates and informs, you know, Sunday morning.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, and, and you can see me, so I'm cheesing like a bug. Um, yeah. this this is just amazing because to me, you're, you're you're so right. Just thinking about why do people not take the craft of gospel music as seriously as they take other genres uh, of music, and so. I, I didn't have this question in mind before so 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 give me some space here so I'm interested to know because th- when I think about the archive and how people collect data and collect you know their archival so, so can you actually discuss how you actually what's the gathering process and the storage process because as someone as someone who works on like you know a more you know paper archive I'm actually very interested to know what is What does a sonic archive look like for you in in terms of storage and stuff? Because like, I'm just, you you got my synapses going right now, Dr. Harold. I'm I'm hype right now. Right. So probably
2: for the past 25, I never go to a city without going to a record store. Mm. And that's largely because I'm a gospel fan. And unlike jazz, gospel doesn't get a lot of reissues that have you know, extended editions. You know, I get we get what I call filling station, the filler station. That's how I used to say
0: <laughs> filler
2: station um, CDs, where you open up the CD and like the like, you know, there's no liner notes. It's just blank. And so, part of I'm a record collector, and so because you got to get the liner notes,
0: mm-hmm.
2: so the liner notes tell a deeper story um and when you're talking about the 60s and the 70s usually a journalist wrote a story about the album and it's on the back so part of my sonic archive and i'm just a collector now i've stolen a lot of stuff from family and friends <laughs> who my mom like reassured me that's okay you stole a lot of your auntie's basement because she stole it from me so it's like <laughs> but I, I you know so I, I mean i used to go to my aunt's house like on the weekend when i was a kid and she I love to play basketball and she didn't have basketball hoops. So the only thing was to do is to go in her basement and I would just read liner notes. And so I was always a collector. So part of the archival process was um, collecting those records. And then I was a fanatic about how well my favorite artists were were doing on the charts, like Houdini and Randy MC and Whitney Houston And so I used to read Billboard magazine as a kid, but that was because my uncle was a writer and a producer for Atlantic Records. And that's what my mom did as a kid. She read Billboard and Cashbox to keep up with her brother. So she never looked at me as kind of weird for doing this. So I would go to the public library and I would just read magazines. And then I started buying them. And so... I have some magazines that I've had since I was 12, 12 years old. Wow. And, um, some of them I've purchased on eBay. Um, but, um, that was like the basis. So the archive for me is like, you're constantly, you know, you're constantly building that record archive and then going to black bookstores and black record stores that oftentimes like Barky's in Richmond that was opened in 1958, or reads in San Francisco. I've gone to all of these places. Um, um, and they I've often have like posters and promotions from like 1975 and 85 still hanging on the wall. So part of the archival process was using actually Black record stores, the few that are remaining. Mm. And that's one of the most important things that we have to really address is the fragility of the archive. But actually that was like, that was my arch- That was my archival center. Um, sometimes people would give you stuff. I would just buy stuff. So I have just all of this stuff. I'm, you know, I collected, I went to Indiana, they have an amazing archive. Um, but then sometimes it's just luck. It's like going through North Carolina. I still just doing searches, going through Floyd McKissick's papers with CORE and finding this entire archive with James Cleveland in his efforts to form a black college in Seoul City, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the most, maybe not the most, man, one of the most important archives was the Gospel Music Workshop of America. So that is an organization created by James Cleveland in 1967, and they meet every year. And they have a part of the convention, you know, it's all about singing and performances, but they have an academic division where they actually talk about the history, but they have what they call the largest traveling gospel library. And they bring it out once a year. Wow. And they have all kinds of stuff. I mean, just, it, it fills an entire room. And it's like, come on, baby, just come through. And so they got to know me. You know, they let you, if you want to copy or take pictures, you know, you can't take anything. Mm-hmm. And so I would spend like two or three days, just every convention, just just learning. And so it's a living archive. It's the living archive um, that people maintain. Um, and so that's what the, you know, the archival, oh, I'm always like on the ground. So when I would go to Chicago, when I would go to Oakland, as soon as the plane hit the ground, like I'm putting on the sneakers and I'm just walking, walking to Pilgrim Baptist Church. Cause I want to know I want to know what it feels like walking to Walter Hawkins churches, Church, walking to Ephesians, where he recorded um, Love Alive One, but also um, where Bobby Hutton's funeral was
0: mm-hmm. and
2: where his father in law, his, his grandfather in law, you know, um, Reverend Cleveland, E.E. E. Cleveland, eulogized him. So I'm always trying to get the feel. You know, if I hear Walter Hawkins talking about in order to make money performing at three different churches in Oakland, I like literally walked it. I wanted to know what that right. experience was like. So it was like always, you know, going with, going to Durham, North Carolina, going to Shirley Caesar's childhood home. Thinking about that song, I Remember Mama, where she talks about getting happy in the backyard and trying to just sit in that space, stand in that space without the neighbors thinking I'm crazy (laughs) and just trying to like feel that. So I wanted to um, feel that. And for me, that was the joy. Like I once everything opens back up, I'll still probably go and do that kind of thing because it just was it was joy walking from our house to North Carolina. Um, Central, where she attended school her first year, just thinking about all of that, thinking about her, thinking like understanding that geographical landscape, you know, going to dorm and going to Union Baptist where John P. Key went to church, mm-hmm. you know, and trying to understand when he said, you know, um, I was born in Durham, North Carolina, outside the county line, you know, I wanted to understand that, I wanted to understand that, and so sitting in that space um that was so that's for me that's a part of the archival process
1: man see see and i know and i know my my favorite cultural historians out there just salivating out there just just excited waiting to get out um and and, and to to also use some of the same methods because i think that is very important i um um i uh let me see i moderated a discussion for the latest AIHS uh conference where uh Dr. Tavolia Glimpse said she don't write about a place unless she'd been there. And so, mm. you know, mm-hmm. uh in, in large part through through her work. And so like that what you just said reminded me of what she just uh said a couple months ago in our discussion. And mm. also that's true. yeah, and and that's something as someone who's doing a dissertation proposal like on the eighteenth century Chesapeake, it's like okay I lived on the eastern shore for a summer so I know what driving like mm-hmm. I know what it's like you know obviously they didn't drive at the time but like going over the bay bridge and kind of thinking about okay if I'm going over this how did how did how did uh African and African American folk mm-hmm. you know navigate routes to freedom and so it's, it's like being centered in the place and going to, and I and and the, the funny part which you you just said was make sure the neighbors don't think I'm crazy. <laughs> because look, you, you know, this is, you know, it's an important yeah. piece. It's an important yeah, piece. And, and
2: place is so important because, um, you know, so much about this book is understanding the regional dynamics that shape the art forms um, development. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's kind of like we move we start with James Cleveland. And so we start in Chicago. You know, and that sacred order of Chicago that Wallace Best talks about that shaped James Cleveland. You know, mm-hmm. he's 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 developing within a cultural matrix, an institutional matrix that includes, um, you know, Thomas Dorsey and and Roberta Martin and, and Mahalia Jackson. But then we move to California. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. And so
2: California, L.A. and San Francisco really shapes the art form. Um, and then there's no talking about the art form without Detroit. You know, right. and the Clark sisters, and Commission, and that the Winans, and that the Detroit Twang.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, that also includes people that I don't talk about, um, like like um, Thomas Whitfield. And then if you're thinking about the larger Michigan area, um, Rance Allen. But then you know, like we in, in Dallas, we end in, in Texas, we end in, in Dallas, Fort Worth with with, with Kurt Franklin, and then even with Yolanda Adams in Houston, and so places so important. So yeah, you have to be there and you have to understand how, uh, the rhythms of those places and all the other cultural forms, um, in those places, you know, you can't talk about Detroit gospel without talking about the polish and the shine and the sonic perfection that was Motown, you know? And so, um, yeah, place is important and you gotta, you know, yeah, you, you have to you have to be there. Like, yeah. So you're doing like you doing Virginia. You got to go to Virginia and get caught in one of those, um, one of those thunderstorms. Mm-hmm. Like I got caught in one after seeing D'Angelo one time and it was in Norfolk. And I just got, we got drenched and, but it made me understand so much about the 17th and 18th century, like that, that, that space. Right. And so mm-hmm. yeah, you gotta, you gotta immerse yourself in that, in that, in that place.
1: Look, and, and we were all immersed with, in, into some uh, D'Angelo a couple months ago with that Versus. that and, you know D'Angelo and friends. That was right. That, that was one of my favorites of them.
2: <laughs> D'Angelo uh, and D'Angelo, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> look, that look. We, I think you know when we talk about the music from this uh, last year and a half. You know, you got to say D Nice. You got to say verses, and you got to say you know Joe Scott and um mm-hmm. Erica Badu and uh, uh Hammond and Franklin and yeah. uh, some of their missteps in there uh <laughs> you know <laughs> that was that was pretty egregious but um but but so so when sunday comes as folks are going to notice with your amazing book consists of 11 chapters and an epilogue and not all the chapters are of similar length so I'm actually mm-hmm. really interested to hear what you say about this so I don't usually ask my authors to comment on this aspect of book creation, but how did you actually decide on the organizational structure of when Sunday comes? Uh, Because I know you had mentioned some of the folks who might've been uh, left out on the cutting room floor, but can you discuss in terms of the actual organizational structure, right? When did you know that you were ready to press submit on that or on those chapters?
2: I think when I didn't get pushback from the reviewers.
0: <laughs>
1: okay.
2: Um, I also think that I felt as if I if I would have tried to move chronologically, like a narrative mm-hmm. where you go from saying and, and it start the book really starts in 1968 with the Gospel Music Workshop of America and ends with Kirk emergence. So 1994. Um, I felt as if it would have just had too many Ups and downs. It just would have been. Um, I, I'm not so sure. I felt as if I had the, the 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 writing skills. So I'm going to be completely honest with you. To hold that kind of narrative moving chronologically, so I thought the collective biography would would hold better. Would hold better. Um, and so I think. I took that chance. I had some people read it and there wasn't much pushback though. There were people who talked about the unevenness in terms of the length of the chapter. So like, you know, James Cleveland's chapter, Shirley Caesar, Andre Crouch is pretty long. Uh, Vanessa Bell Armstrong's chapter is a little short as is um, the Thompson community choir's chapter. But I felt like each chapter focused on a particular theme and had a certain narrative arc that I wanted to keep because I thought there was some integrity to that art. Um, I, I think like if I would have decided to just move chronologically, um, I think how, if, and we were focusing on say 1988, 1989, um, that's a year where those are two years where I'm not sure like Vanessa Bell Armstrong would have gotten those years. Um, because I think there were some other artists, if, if we are focusing on the commercial, it would have been overshadowing. Um, and so in some ways, um, my, my, my decision to, to organize it in such, in such a way was to really give full attention to the artistic development of, um, a particular artist, um, there are problems with that because, for example, Andre Crouch, there's a lot of focus on his relationship to his white audience and sort of racism within the church, his, his sonic innovations. And, you know, I think one reviewer, after it was published, you know, sort of said, well, that doesn't come up again. And just to be honest, it doesn't come up again because there's no one else like him. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, B.B. and CC come pretty pretty close. Um, And at the same time, I think if I would have had a chapter that dealt with kind of um, questions around African-American artists and white contemporary Christian music record labels and audiences, it would have simplify the complexity of that artist. And so my I think at the end of the day, my goal was once again to select people that I, I don't think you could, you could tell the story of this period and how it was experienced without. But it, the challenge of that is how someone was loved in 1988 mm-hmm. may not be the ways in which they were remembered. They are remembered now. Right. So there are some artists that are like deities for us who actually had some commercial struggles in the eighties. Um, and so there are some artists too, who maybe were hugely popular among certain denominations, but it wasn't like always universal. Right. So, um, and, and there's no such thing as universal, but, um, that, that was kind of shaping, I think what I was doing. And I hope I answered that question for you, but, um, that's what I'm, yeah, that's what I'm thinking through. But I think it's also something you can do on your third book, (laughs)
0: Look, (laughs) You
2: you know, that, you know, maybe you have some leeway and then everybody could like, um, beat it up and say, nah, this ain't happening, but there's other stuff coming out by younger scholars, I mean, I'm already talking to folks. That's going to be so much better than what I did. Mm. And I'm just trying to also, I think, lay um, not even a foundation, but build on the work that people like Jeremy Jackson and Guthrie Ram- Guy Ramsey and, um, uh, you know, um, so many other artists, uh, Portia, I mean, writers, Portia Malsby, Melanie Burnham, um, Aisha Jones. I mean, there's so many people doing some amazing stuff. Um, so I'm just trying to build on that and, uh, Ro- yeah, Robert Darton, um,
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, th- and create this space. Bob Marovich, you know, and um, yeah, what's coming out next is going to be. I mean, it's some it's some folks doing some amazing stuff. There's one guy, for example, working working on a book on Thomas Whitfield, and it's going to be awesome, you know. And so like to, to think about even someone like Thomas Whitfield, who was so innovative, but also who had some commercial struggles in the eighties, um, but so innovative. And so at the, at the cutting edge of the art form and to now think about, uh, the ways that he's been elevated to think about how Arthur Jaffa is basically using his video in like, um, exhibits and at, at presentations and just like, introducing him to a completely different group of folk. And so, um, I think it's going to be, yeah, I'm really excited about the next group. And so if this can be a source book, um, for the next generation, that's all I want to do. I just want to help advance the writing of gospel music.
1: And you did. And let me tell you, I'm, I'm very much, uh, loving, you know, the work that you, that you've been doing for, for a while now. And, and reading when Sunday comes to me is, it's a book that I can give my mom, I can give to my my aunties, and because to me, a book like this provides an understanding of the world in which my mom grew up in as a Pentecostal mm-hmm. black girl in mm-hmm. the sixties and the seventies in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. and so, mm-hmm. you know, and and I and and she was reading some of um uh, some of, uh, the book. And it was like, you know, usually I ask people now that I've gotten to this question of like, what are the, what are like the five to 10 books or five to 10 songs, right. That make up the, the kind of like the mixtape of the book. But mm. then again, when Sunday comes, is that right personified, <laughs> right. In, in chapter right. form. Um, but it, it, for, for her, it was just a fun experience because it was like, Oh, this is like the historical background of the music that she would listen to every single, you know, Sunday and throughout the week as well, because she was almost every day was church day because she was, you know, Mm -hmm. involved right in the particular ways. And so, um, and so some of the things that she learned probably surprised her, but as you, as the writer of this book and also a a self-professed a gospel music fan, while you were researching, did anything surprise you along the way? Um,
2: The genius, and it didn't surprise me. It overwhelmed me. Mm. The genius of Shirley Caesar. Um, Shirley Caesar, and I'm familiar with her discography. I'm familiar with her legacy. I'm familiar with her politics. I mean, the same year that she recorded "Hold My Mew, shouting "John," she won a seat on Durham City Council. That's just the expansiveness of her life, and just, but her genius as a as a songwriter, as a performer, as a storyteller, as someone who's deeply rooted in African American history and oral traditions, and there was so much on her because she is so in control of her narrative. So um and she was also popular among critics like New York Times critics and Washington Post. So the thing about her is you could always find these extensive articles. Um, and I think so surprise is not the word, but just really overwhelmed by I want somebody to put her in conversation with Azora uh, Neil Hurston, thinking mm. about the South region, race and class. And, and there are people who've done wonderful work like, um, um, you know, um, I think it's Cheryl Saunders and, and Cheryl get, um, uh, yeah. Gilks professor Gilks. And, um, um, she, yeah, she's, it was just over. It was really overwhelming. Um, yeah. Her, her genius um andre crouch it is really hard to articulate and convey when there is no analog how popular he was
0: mm.
2: um from like there was a comic book that was like series uh, that, that was devoted to him um but also just his range right. um his ability to 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 do gospel, to do contemporary Christian music, Um, but just the Andre Crouch mania was something. And not surprising, but it's nobody like James Cleveland. And I think he reinforced to me the importance of institution building. You know, the the, the beauty about the gospel music and is that it is also an art form that has been sustained by Black people and Black institutions. And to think about the Gospel Music Workshop of America emerging in the late 1960s, doing the Black Power Movement, doing the Black Arts Movement, um, Black Artist Workshops, it's a part of that lineage. And to know that they still meet. They meet every year. And there are thousands of people who support this art form Um, in a moment where I think we still need models of institution building. It's a model for me. Um, It's a model for you. I think it's a model Mm -hmm. for all of us who are also trying to create things, you know, and sustain things and pass it on to the next generation. And, do things that honor the ancestors and the elders. That intergenerational transmission of knowledge and culture uh, that's maintained by institutions. Um, my my mentor Greg Carr often says, "You know, people don't be institutions." And so, not surprised me, but just it overwhelmed me. It provided me with joy. Hmm. And that's what I felt to quote Douglas Miller, like writing this book, unspeakable joy, just, just proud, you know, just like, you know, like, wow, you know, it's just like, um, and that's not to say that there aren't some, there weren't some tough moments. That's not to say that there are some things about the art form in the industry that, you know, saddens me, but that kind of, yeah, that was overwhelming. Just like the genius, um, and like I said, I mean, James Cleveland, I mean, of course, um, you know, the really Twinkie Clark, you know, mm-hmm. um, her mind just, you know, fascinated me. Um, and I, I'm just grateful to have the opportunity to just sit in their genius. Yeah. You know, and that was like, that was really cool.
1: And, and it was great and cool to read. And so, you know, obviously... James Cleveland, as you just said, plays a central role in When Sunday mm-hmm. Comes and gospel music in general. So uh, for, for those who might not necessarily be in the know of James Cleveland, but they will certainly after they hear this question and then follow up with reading and buying a book from the University of Illinois Press. Thank you so much. Um, what were particularly unique qualities he held and developed that ultimately led to his rise, success? and his long-lasting legacy in Black sacred music.
2: Right. So, one was he was an institution builder. Um, He created the Gospel Music Workshop of America in 1967, and his idea was there needed to be a place where African Americans could sharpen their artistic skills, could gain more training in the art form and in the industry, and... Gain sort of economic autonomy. So that's the place where if you were a young artist, you know, trying to break through, and that could be Kirk Franklin or John P. Key, because they all spent time at the Gospel Music Workshop of America. You attended that convention, but sometimes you were also a member of your state Gospel Music Workshop of America. So he really built an institution. You know, he, he would often say, this is not about showcasing oneself. It's about building an institution, and so um, there's nothing comparable to that. There are there people who had conventions and seminars here in the art form, no doubt. Um, also, he was in the sixties and the seventies the biggest gospel artist. Um, Peace be still was a million seller. Mm. Um, it stayed on the top of the charts for like five years almost. You know, it was not uncommon to get a Billboard magazine in the 1970s and the top 10 albums, like seven of them, were James Cleveland albums. Wow. So um, he was a commercial success. He was also an innovator. Uh, there's something distinctive about his piano playing. There's it's a particular style, which is why that's who Aretha Franklin was like, if I'm going to record Amazing Grace in 72 and I'm going to do this gospel album, I'm not doing it without James Cleveland. So he is a producer. He's a songwriter. He's a conceptualist. um, He's a, um, he's an arranger. He understands sound, but there's also story in his voice. And so when you hear James Cleveland, Like, you know who he is. I mean, there's something distinctive about, him. you know, he didn't have to hit a lot of notes, but he hit you right in the heart. You know, he could Marvin Winans talks about seeing him and how he could just say, I stood, you know, and that's a song called I stood on the banks of the River Jordan and people would just go crazy. You know, when he says, master, the tempest is raging. And that lets you know how bad Vanessa Bell Armstrong is because she could cover that song. And sometimes when you say that, people think of his version and they also think of her version. So I would say Institution Builder, amazing commercial success. Whether you're talking about, I mean, just the songs, Where Is Your Faith, Lord Help Me to Hold Out, Peace Be Still, um, God Is, God Is. I teach a class called from Motown to hip hop and I have a lot of students who love Kanye. So I played his version of God is. Mm -hmm. Then I played the James Cleveland version and the students were like, whoa. Um, He is a part of what I think is the greatest gospel album of all time. Aretha Franklin's um, amazing grace, Mm -hmm. you know, and how people felt about him can be captured when she said, you know, St James I mean <laughs> that that was him so that 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 um singularity of his talent no one was like him but an institution builder because it's not just about your individual success it's about building an institution transmitting aspects of the culture to the next generation and then I would just say lastly he was on savoy records from like 19 from like 1960. 61, 1960 until really the late nineteen eighties. And basically he was responsible for a lot of other people getting signed. And not just people that we know about, but you know, you go to the record store, you'll find albums, and you're like, Who is this? But it'll be like James Cleveland presents so and so on. So that kind of um that kind of expansive talent and just control, it was it was really singular. Um, um and I know Robert Bob Mar- Mar- Maravich is coming out with a book with Illinois um, just called On-, On Peace Be Still, the recording of that song, oh, wow. the album in 1963. And so, um, yeah, he deserves a biography. He, you know, he deserves a biography. So, yeah, he is he is singular to me he is, he is just, he's that dude.
1: (laughs) Good. Yeah. Look, and I, and one of the best parts about reading your book is like, I was in a mode of just like playlist making. Mm -hmm. And so like reading this book, unlike many, pretty pretty much most, if not all others that I've done over the course of my podcast career, I'm just download, 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 Mm -hmm. download. Oh, whole album bet let's do it like and so you you just you just uh, uh blessed my uh my my listening and, and and work experience because sometimes i can actually say you disrupted it because then i get the praising right quick and we getting <laughs> we getting jiggy with it you know what i'm saying so you know a little praise break here there you know that's always good for the soul and so what was even better for the soul uh, maybe not even better, but uh, uh, almost equal to that was reading your third chapter. Look, now, personally, like I said, your third chapter, Whole Mom, Mule, Shirley Caesar, and the Gospel of the New South, was definitely my favorite. But to yeah, me, I think that's
2: the best chapter.
1: Like, okay, okay. For for the the author said it. The author said it, y'all. So 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 I ain't, I ain't capping. Like the author said it herself, and so. Now, here's the thing. To many listeners, when they hear or see the name Shirley Caesar, they remember the viral moment from a few years ago that clipped portions of Caesar's Hold My Mule sermonette. You demonstrate, though, that within the humor one can easily glean from the viral moment, we must remember that Hold My Mule displays as, and I'm quoting you here, caesar's unrivaled skills as a storyteller and her ability to capture the class tensions gripping black america during the post-civil rights era so professor Harrow, can you explain to the audience about the foundations of caesar's storytelling ability because let me tell y'all as professor Harold said and like i said you going to want to get this background to help you understand why Hold My Mule is so amazing. So, Dr. Harold, please. Um. So you're talking about the song itself or just... We could talk about the whole thing, her storytelling ability in general, <laughs> yeah. you know, the song, uh, the sermonette as well, you know, it, it it's just amazing to me.
2: Yeah, I mean, so you know, it's interesting. Um, she's it's on the eve of her 50th birthday when she records that song in Chicago and, um, multi Grammy award winning artist. Um, she's achieved everything you can achieve as an artist. And, um, she felt as if she had been in a rut. And so she wanted to record this live album with the Thompson community choir singers who also, um, have a chapter in the book, and um, she records home My mule which is the story of an eighty-six-year-old farmer landowner who joins what she calls a dead church—a church that doesn't believe in singing and speaking in tongues. And <laughs> let's go, let's go. <laughs> and uh, there's a part of you, though, that says, "Why did John join that church?" You know, <laughs> some of this, you know, John brought on himself for mm-hmm. joining that church, but he joins a church that is troubled by his expressive religiosity. And so the deacons and the deaconess <laughs> decide that they have to go out to John's house, um, to let him understand and let him know that this is not what, this not what they do. And, um, so she tells the story of this confrontation between Shout and John and, um, the the deacon board, the usher board, we don't know. Or as she likes to say, dignitaries, church Mm -hmm. dignitaries. And, um, they tell John, you know, and and so he, he walks over, you know, and he looks at them coming out of there and she say, "Fine cars, cars. And he looks around and say, whole mule. And then he says, I know what you come out here to tell me. You come out here to tell me that I praise the Lord too much. Um, And they threatened him with disfellowship and say, if you don't stop cutting the fool in church, um, we're going to throw you out because we have tried to, you know, contain you. When you get happy in church, we have grabbed your legs and your arms are flowing and, and just, you know, we've grabbed your arms and your feet are going. And so he begins to recount his blessings. And he says, you know, look at all of this property, you know. And so it's interesting to think about, he's talking about being an owner of property in 1989, 1988. And of course, we know this is a period in which a lot of black farm owners, particularly in North Carolina, Mm -hmm. have lost land. In fact, there's a lawsuit that happens, I think, in 1988, 1989. And so there's this confrontation. And He just begins to recount his blessing. He says, you know, not one time have I been to the courthouse. Not one time have I been to the cemetery but you don't want me to dance in your church. And he begins to shout all over his, you know, all over his property. And it's so many interesting things about that, because I think what she's capturing is also the class tensions, Mm -hmm. you know, um, people who believe in this sort of politics of respectability that you're supposed to act a certain way. But she complicates the narrative because, clearly, this is a person who is quite successful. But he's not bragging.
0: Mm-hmm. He's
2: not talking about his material possessions as something that he's achieved because of his um, his own unique talents. But he's achieved them as a result of God's grace. Right. And so what she does in this song is, in many ways, she illuminates for us and brings to the forefront these class tensions that exist um, in Black America. And that's a theme in a lot of her music, you know, like the song, her popular 1969 song, Don't Throw Your Mama Away. You know, it's always these, you know, what's happening in terms of class politics in a post-civil rights moment. Um, But she has the crowd, you know, throughout the song. And they're just hanging on her every word. And she just brings it. And of course, if you've seen Shirley Caesar live, when she says, I'm going to shout all over this place, she shouts all over this place. Nobody can shout and dance like Shirley Caesar. Mm -hmm. And whether you see her perform this in Chicago or whether you see this performing in her classic live video that came out in Memphis, you know, she's shouting to the rhythm of the band and shouting to the rhythm of the spirit. Uh, But it's just an amazing, um, it's, it's storytelling at its best. You know, it is, it is, it embodies what James Weldon Johnson talked about when he talked about the black sermonic tradition. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what she brings. And that's what she brings to that song. And to think about her recording that song after, say, nine years at Word Records, uh, where she had recorded songs that had a contemporary gospel feel. Uh, a disco feel like her first album with word, um, in 1980, uh, rejoice. Um, she cuts it with, um, the legendary country producer, Tony Brown. So you can hear disco. Um, but she also covers Bob Dylan who just celebrated of course his 80th birthday. Um, you got to serve somebody, which Mm -hmm. for me is one of the best Bob Dylan covers ever. Um, but she just had this incredible, incredible range. Um, and that, that is evident on Hold My Mule," but evident on the album from which it um, emerges live in Chicago, which she also has a song called The Blood, in which she dedicates to, quote, the AIDS victims. Mm. So she's also one of the first gospel artists to kind of talk about this disease, this pandemic that's affecting a lot of folks in the church.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so she's always you know, you know, forward thinking. So in a moment in a year in which BB and, CC and Take Sits have Gold Albums, Billboard awards her album, the greatest gospel album of the year. Mm. And so she is um she's a genius. And because she is, as she would say, a woman of God. And this is the difficulty of grappling with someone like a Shirley Caesar. And also Alberita uh, Twinkie Clark because they attribute their genius to spirit. They're not going to sit and talk about all the instruments they play and all mm-hmm. the songs that they have written and all of the artistic innovations that they have um, made over the course of their career. So part of your job is as a, as a writer is to really put some of those things up front because, mm-hmm. um, they just don't do it in that way. So oftentimes, when we when we when we discuss even the the transformations and the advances in gospel music, um, I don't think we give Shirley Caesar enough credit. But disco funk, she did it all, and she traversed the world of contemporary gospel and traditional gospel. But she was never going to kind of sit there and say, you know, I'm a major innovator and I sit in the studio all day and think of these ideas because, no, she's just doing the work of God. But she also has kind of this hardcore working class, you know, kind of work ethic that is mm-hmm. just about she's just putting in the work, Um but uh that that particular song means uh, a lot to me and if you were listening to gospel music gospel radio and I'm pretty sure your mom mm-hmm. could attest to this like <laughs> it was nothing to hear that song like two three times in an hour. Uh, and the thing about it is it sounded fresh all the time mm-hmm. and so that that remix you know you know we got greens potatoes you know yep, all of yep. that you know it's so interesting and I just hope people also understand like, the context in which that comes because she's also highlighting people and communities that were still kind of rooted in the soil and still
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know still you know rooted in the land and farming and all of those things because she's also talking about nature and food mm-hmm. and what we have as what we need to really nourish us yep um and um so it, it, you know it's like real important, but it's like yeah, yeah. Shirley season was she she's a rock star and a rap star, as the, as, the, yep. as that song indicated. So for her to have that kind of success or that kind of revival in 2016, which also occurred, um, you know, alongside with her, um, you know, doing a soundtrack for um, "It's Escaping Me." Um, What's that Sunday, that show about the church? Um uh, Greenleaf? Was it Greenleaf? Yeah. 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 Um, um, and so she had that song, you know, she had um, Satan, I'm going to um, tear your kingdom down. Right. So it's like people are constantly rediscovering her and just um, falling in love with her again. And that was the beautiful thing. I fell in love with Shirley Caesar so many times.
1: And, and it's so <laughs> it's fascinating. So my my dearly departed grandma, Grandma Eva, before I knew who Shirley Caesar was, I knew she hate. She, okay, I'm not gonna say she hated Shirley Caesar. God forgive me. <laughs> but she did. She was not a fan for the simple fact of you said this earlier in, in your comment. She can um, uh, uh, the the particular performance element right in terms of like you know you know she 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 extra in all the best ways right my grandmama was not she wasn't a fan so before i even knew who shirley caesar was uh-huh. i knew i had the outside influence of my grandmother so it was around the time like as i got older and i started to you know started listening to gospel music on my own started to develop my own appreciation But in particular, Tear Your Kingdom Down is actually my favorite because like, and and this is why, so like I recently uh, purchased a um, subscription to YouTube Music because I realized I really enjoy the live performances and the, um, you know, Spotify's and the the, uh, iTunes and the titles usually don't give you like the full, you know, the fullness that a YouTube can. And I say that because I was listening to um, so apparently Lovecraft Country in their soundtrack actually uh, a sample or they they used rather um, uh, "Tear Your Kingdom Down" and for some reason the particular version that they did they start you know it's just so soul stirring and so I got that on one of my playlists and whenever it comes on oh it's time to get working it right. it, it just does that it just focuses. My mind in a particular way, like it's just one, probably one of my favorite songs.
2: Yeah, and if you love that song, you'll probably love too. Don't be afraid. It also has that kind of acapella um, sound. And you know, her dad, who died very young, I think he was in his 40s, and she was just a little girl. Um, but he was known as one of the best singers in in um, in North Carolina. He was mm-hmm. a part of the Just Come For Quartet. Um, who really played a key role in in the popularity of quartets in North Carolina. But, um, yeah, I mean, she's, um, you know, she's also interesting because she comes from, like, the holiness tradition and um, Mount Calvary. And so that's something we haven't talked about. But for me, and as somebody who really doesn't regularly go to church anymore, but for me, that was also something that I really had to learn, like, um, and not learn, but re—well, no, (laughs) learn— but understand different denominations within mm-hmm. this. So, you know, like this, you, you got Kojic, you got, you know, holiness, you got Mount Calvary, you got, you know, Baptist with James Cleveland, you got sanctified Baptist, you got non-denominational, you know, so you also had all of these denominational denominations that also shape the music and also shape the message sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so um, that was another thing of learning. And I know with her, Because I was just like always trying to figure out like, you know, I think about Miles Davis, you know, he used to tell um, he used to tell, I guess, Tony Williams to go the drummer to go spy on Wayne Shorter because, you know, Shorter was coming out with all these great songs. Like, what does he do? Like, you know, just and that's how I felt sometimes with Shirley Caesar. Like, I just wanted to. um, Like, what? what, what she read? Like, you know, uh-huh. just like it's something that's deeper than just, you know, kind of surface level, but, um, someone who's, uh, like the genius just really fascinates you. I mean, like I said, Twinkie Clark is like that. I remember Carol Cooper, uh, great, great writer and music critic, um, cultural critic. Um, she interviewed Twinkie Clark and she once asked her, you know, about like, what does she listen to? And does she listen to jazz and, you know, in different art forms? And she says, um, I don't listen, but I hear. Mm. I don't listen, but I hear. And so, you know, it's like you got to find a way. So that's why when you ask me about interviewing people, I think it's an interesting dynamic because you can interview people, but you also, you have to read between the lines. Mm -hmm. And understand, like, what she's saying is, you know, I don't listen, but I hear. She's also speaking as someone who's coming from a certain kind of church tradition where she can't just be, you know, it's like, balancing that artistic genius and innovation and experimentation which you know, also your, your calling and all of those things. And, and also, you know, we're supposed to be always moved by the spirit.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: sometimes it kind of um, disciplines the ways in which you talk about being moved by other artistic traditions, especially if those things come out of um. They don't come out of the church, but I mean, like, Mm -hmm. anybody who listens to Twinkie Clark, you know, knows that she's been listening to Stevie Wonder and Herbie Hancock and all of those things. So, like, there's a part of me, and I think that's why I'll try to extend this book into probably, like, a website or something. Like, I just want to know, like, what she was doing at Howard, like that, you know, because actually some of those Howard votes are on her solo albums um from 79 and 78 79 and 80 um but you know i'm always i'm like interested in how people are made Mm -hmm. so that's like a story that i also want to tell like you know how 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 you know geniuses innovators they're not born they're made and so Mm -hmm.
1: um yeah and 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 that's and that's very important what you've extended for us here because the artistry opens folks up to world-changing experiences, right? Because mm-hmm. this is music that is played in church, played in your most, you know, you spoke about the fact that in 2017, what gospel music did for you, right? In terms of the particular time frame, uh, and obviously what was going on in Charlottesville. And so it makes me also think about the, the way that gospel music and, and Black sacred musical performers have actually navigated the politics of the eras that birthed them and that their work uh, was, 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 uh, came, came into, into being. And so how did, and, and you had spoken about this with, um, with Shirley Caesar, but, but I wonder what other stories you can uh, let the folks know to discuss how did the artists in Wednesday Comes navigate a, this quickly changing world? Um, especially as the HIV AIDS and and crack Mm -hmm. epidemics, uh, were ravaging black communities, um, especially during the Reagan era in the early nineties.
2: Yeah. So it's, it's major. Um, and they are trying to respond to a shifting economic landscape, post-industrialization, um, a de-industrialization, excuse me. Um, you know, the urban crisis, you know, um. Class stratification and difference within the African American community, um, AIDS, um, (laughs) natural disaster, Um, and so, and also like the rise of the Christian right. Say that. And so, as some Christian white Christian institutions begin to integrate and begin to open things up for some African-American performers, they are also presented with (laughs) uh, or, or they encounter certain strands of conservatism that's different from the strands of conservatism that's kind of, you know, sort of rooted in their communities. And so one of the things that we see our artists addressing uh, these problems in terms of the urban crisis, in terms of crime, in terms of uh, deindustrialization. So, for example, in Detroit, you know, you have a group of artists who are navigating a city that's dealing with massive population loss, um, the loss of unionized, high paying jobs, um, the fracturing or the alleged fracturing of the family. hmm. Um, what some would call a gender crisis, a crisis in gender identities, questions around sexuality. And so you hear it in the music, you know, and it's particularly profound, I think, in the music of the Winans, the quartet, the Winans. And so um, they talk about everything, international issues, domestic issues. Um, And they also demonstrate how you can never use one, descriptive to explain the politics they take on what we may call liberal positions progressive um, excuse me liberal positions progressive positions and they also have some deeply conservative lyrics Um, and so they are attempting to make sense of you know the world they are attempting to make sense of you know, what's going on in Afghanistan in the early 80s? They're attempting to deal with uh, the Cold War, you know, or the legacies of the Cold War, apartheid. You know, so in 1985, when most Christian artists are um, silent about apartheid, the Winans released Let My People Go, mm. which is their first single on Quincy Jones' uh, Warner Brothers imprint Quest. Uh, records, and um, it is a song that critiques um, apartheid. It is a song that aligns itself with the global struggle against apartheid. Um, so, it shouldn't surprise us that in 1990, in June of 1990, when Nelson Mandela visits Detroit, and the three-bit singers on the on the headline, Stevie <laughs> Wonder, Aretha Franklin, and the Whitens. Mm. Interestingly enough, the Winans at the time had a number five album on R&B charts with the Teddy Riley produced It's Time. You know, it's time to make that change, you know. And when you listen to that song, you hear, you know, the voice of one of my favorite singers of any genre, Marvin Winans, but talking about, you know, diseases are spreading mighty fast mm. and earthquakes are moving through the land. You know, that's the, that's the year after the San Francisco earthquake.
1: Mm, right. so they're talking
2: wow. about all of these issues and one of the interesting things about that song and i've been i've been writing about this and thinking about this lately is it's a way in which teddy riley's new jack swing the kind of angst in the music and the kind of jagged edges in that new jack swing sound it fit perfectly with the with the message that the winings we're giving, trying to confront a Detroit that's rapidly changing, trying to deal with a post-King, post-industrial, post-Motown world.
0: Mm.
2: And I remember in 91, I think it was 91, I visited Detroit. (laughs) This is how much I, yeah. Mm -hmm. I went to Marvin Winans Church perfecting. And I remember, I'm a kid, and I, I was talking to him, you know, I love your music on a... And he was talking about, um, I think it was Daniel, his brother, Daniel, BB and CC had already left Detroit for Nashville. And he was like, um, it's me. And I think Ronald, he was basically saying most of my brothers and sisters have left the city. So one of the things that I often, um, kind of think about was like, as you're experiencing this kind of social socioeconomic reality, but one that's also shaping family life and community life. How do you theologically make sense of that? You know? And so I think people make sense of it in terms of very involved in politics. Um, So even if you look at their political leanings, you know, they've supported democratic mayors, but they've also supported Republicans. Mm -hmm. Um, but understanding how people are trying to make sense of that, and how it begins to evidence itself in the music, and so at the same time, it's in that music when you hear certain, um, certain kind of themes about sexuality. So I think about uh, one of their songs um, from their album Tomorrow called I "Think It Won a Grammy." Bring back the days of yay and a. You know, I remember when life was so simple. Mm-hmm. You did or you didn't? You would or you wouldn't. But it ain't like that anymore. And then it was like, you know, parents were a light. Through them, you you know, you understood what was right and wrong. Mm-hmm. But then they had a line where it say, women were women and men were men. Lord. So part of, you know, the good old days was this kind of gender alleged gender conformity. Now, of course, if we know anything about the church, yeah, gospel music. Say that. I, I mean. But that's, so that's what people are navigating. And that's what a young teenager like myself, that's also something you're listening to. Mm-hmm. Um. And so as people are trying to wrestle with all of these things, you begin to hear it in the music. So you hear it in the Winding's. You hear it in commission. Uh, you hear it in the Clark sisters. You know, actually, Twinkie and Marvin have a song called Word of God, where they rearticulate some of those things that I just talked about. At the same time, the Clark sisters have a song called Good Hands. I'm in good hands. And it's it's a line that Twinkie has where she says, you know, God's economics beat Reaganomics. Mm. You know, and so it's also like this way in which you can never fully. Um, you can't people can't be simplified. You know, you can't put people in one box. But I am interested in how some of that language and some of those ideas begin to circulate. Um, in such a way that people are introduced to some of these themes that we associate with, like a, a moral majority. Um, but you know, the great writer and civil rights activist, Wyatt T. Walker, in his book, um, Somebody's Calling My Name, says that what black people are singing uh, religiously will tell you what's happening to them sociologically. Mm. Um, kind of paraphrasing it. And so um I think you see that throughout the 70s, throughout the eighties. Um you you know, you sort of see that in the music. So that's why even today I look at some of the, you know, I'm trying to get more into contemporary artists, um, mm-hmm. like LaCroix and trying to understand what what some of those folks are doing and and how um, you know, I, I'll say this, even some of the even some of the artists who like have identified with like Black Lives Matter and, mm-hmm. and, you know, talk about police brutality. There's a kind of openness and a, a frankness to me in this moment that I didn't see always like
0: mm-hmm. you
2: know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, but saw a little bit of it in the 80s. And so right. it's also interesting to see how people have changed. And so, um, like I said, the same person who could write a song about apartheid could be the same person who promotes George Bush because of a position on gay marriage and could be the same person who tells their congregation to not vote for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I'm, I'm saying all of that to say understanding those complexities, but that gets to your original question. When you asked me about interviewing people, sometimes I read interviews from people that are so, they contrast so much from what I heard in the eighties. Or the nineties. Right. And so sometimes you have to kind of just step back and try to make sense of it yourself.
1: And that comes to being a nimble interviewer as well. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you got to be able sometimes the notes are on paper. Sometimes I got to also be in your head because sometimes you don't get the chance to, you know, specifically if it's in a live interview versus, you know, looking back yeah. to it. Um, but, you know, once again, you still got to be nimble enough to be able to triangulate, you know, Okay, you've changed a little bit, because I'll say this, like with anybody, right? You talk to, you know, I, I'll say this, as 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 a kid, if if I don't know how my mom would feel if she knew that her five year old baby would live to have long locks, earrings, you know, tattoos, and once this. uh once this dissertation proposal is defended and I get that full candidacy, uh, a gold grill, she'd be like, "My baby, my ba-. But here's the thing. If you would have locked her in 1997, mm-hmm. she would have said something. But in 2021, things are different, right? but but then again, that's hopefully most of us in, in many of our positions um, in, in life as things come down. Um, Let me just say this though um, I think part of The job as a
2: scholar With you know A little bit of ethics Is also to Be honest about What you can and what you can't do um, mm. There is Amen. A lot to be said About po- the politics of gender And sexuality And um, I'm hoping like certain chapters <laughs> help people who I think are going to engage that even more, but it's not my gift, it, you know? And so I think also like, um, you have to understand like your research skills, your writing skills. Um, and you have to be honest about the kind of book that you want to write. Mm-hmm. Um, not the book that someone else wants to read but the book that you want to write um because like i said i think um like i think there are aspects of certain artists like james cleveland that i think people would have wanted me to say certain things about and i think that's for you know i think i talked about some of those things that i think is very like i i think he needs a biography Mm -hmm. so just one chapter on certain people it's not gonna cut it um but I think, yeah, I think you have to be honest too about the book that you want to write and the book that um, what you want to say and how you want to contribute. And that doesn't mean that you're open to criticism. That doesn't mean that you, you should push yourself intellectually. Um, but, you know, um, we are a complex people with complex stories
1: mm-hmm. and
2: um, stories that Need to be told multiple times from multiple perspectives.
1: Indeed, right? Because you know we have, you know, no, no one should get the finals, the final say, right? We had Monty um, Perry's uh, a bio of Lorraine Hansberry that came out a couple years ago, and now we have uh, 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 Dr. Gilbert over at Georgetown's new one that's, uh, that I think, just dropped um, this this month, if not this week, and so no one should have the final the final save because everybody got their own perspective and something to add so um that that's actually a really good one for me to for me to think about as well and especially once you start to get uh comments from uh outside i'm not going to call them agitators but outside folk <laughs> about about the project so um but this is actually an interesting segue for the next question about challenges um and so this is an amazing book that, you know, I think, like you said, is going to provide a lot of foundations for people for to, to learn about gospel music, but to also understand how this work gets done, right? Because gospel music is not only the music that we hear, but there's a whole heck of a lot of production that goes on for us to even hear folks, right, in terms of practice and such. And so that encounters some, some challenges. But for you as the writer and the constructor of When Sunday Comes, what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced in, in the production of this text? So
2: I think I think one of the challenges was sort of <laughs> one of the challenges was internal in that I needed to commit myself fully to writing this book for your mother. and that 11, 12-year-old girl who bought all these albums and read Billboard and totally gospel, and not to try to write a book that would seek success among people who had no interest in gospel music. And so one of um, the challenges involved also not writing a book that only treated gospel as important as a precursor to something else. Mm-hmm. So when I first started working on this book and I would talk to some of my colleagues about the book or people who were not familiar with gospel music, the first thing that they would ask me was, when did Mahalia Jackson die?
0: Really? And when- <laughs>
2: Yeah. And what that meant was, that's really the only gospel singer that I've heard of. So I knew that I wanted to write a book that would be so engrossing and entertaining and good and deeply researched that even if you didn't know about the art form, you would want to read it. But I didn't want the rock and roll world, the soul world, hip-hop to be um, the entry point all of the time.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: So I didn't want to write a book that um, I had to lead with Kanye West recording God is for you to want to keep reading about James Cleveland. right? And so I think one of the challenges was being honest about the book's audience Mm -hmm. and being honest about your desire to write for people who have a deep interest in this history, who may not know all of the history, but who want to know the backstory and who are a part of a community that has sometimes been dismissed as not being interested in this story. So one of the problems, this is why Mark Anthony Neal is actually so important. Mark Anthony Neal, through his work, from Soul Babies to What the Music Said, through and also his work with Pop Matters, I think really created space for Black writers who didn't just want to cover traditional soul or hip-hop.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, there was, <laughs> you know, as one of my colleagues said, you know, there ain't no Pender- Teddy Pendergrass studies. And <laughs> so right. what we mean... Artists that black people deeply love that may not have crossed over. I mean, he did, but who, you know, still sold a lot of records. Not every artist needed to cross over to be successful. Mm -hmm. But sometimes there's this idea that what matters is the music that crossed over. Right. And so really, to be honest with you, perfectly honest with you, I had to be very clear. No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have a chapter on Vanessa Bell Armstrong. There it is. Well, we never heard of her. Oh, yeah, but you know, oh, but but I know thousands who have heard of her. Right. So, to be honest, that was that was a um, that was a challenge to not sensationalize the story. Um, So those were two important challenges to have a certain clarity about who you wanted your audience to be and to be and to be fine with that Mm -hmm. and to be fine with the results that that would uh, bring about because um, filmmaking has taught me that Mm. Uh, in a sense that sometimes if the entry is not white supremacy. If the entry is not Black people as objects, right? Uh, what we do with this? So, I mean, I've done films with Kevin Everson and they've played all around the world. But sometimes when we screen film, someone said, well, why don't you have a part in a film like where Black people get beat up doing it? Because so, that's not the kind of film that we're making. But the point is, it's like, that's what you want to center. You don't know, no, we don't make stuff about Confederate monuments. Mm-hmm. It's not to say that that work isn't important, but that's not what we do. But sometimes there's a push to make it. Oh, but that's what you should be doing. No, y'all can do that. But I'm going to make a film about, you know, black Greek life. Mm-hmm. Because the interiority of our lives matter. Mm-hmm. And so you have to be, I think with gospel music, um, you have to be very clear about that. On on the flip side, I had to be very clear that, like, that artist that you love, that you watch on YouTube, to hit them 10 notes that you love to watch, but they couldn't sell 10 records in the 1980s. (laughs) I'm not putting them in there. No, just, I'm actually, I'm not joking. But so I think there's also this kind of... um, I had to also be very clear about the artist that I wanted to focus on. And I think some people may think that I put too much emphasis on kind of the commercial success. Right. But I think that when there's a bunch of people who can agree upon your greatness <laughs> and they agree upon it by purchasing your album, like to me, like that matters. And so that also meant, yeah, like um, being, being very specific about Quadrina, stay in 1985. Sometimes I had to stay in 1985 and not 2015 memories of 1985 mm. and embrace my position as a historian, but also as a consumer mm-hmm. and listen to that voice as well. Um, and so that was, you know, in some ways those were challenges. The archives to me, the challenge is the state of them, not my access to them. So that's the thing that I worry about a lot. Um, but it was, um, I mean, I, I, the archives were pretty good. So I would say that was, you know, those are the, the big challenges, being clear about the audience and also overcoming my fears about not knowing the, some of the technicalities of music. And sometimes when you rely, you know, to treat these folks as artists and not just as as an as a, as a, um, entry point into some kind of sociological conversation. So to take the art seriously
1: Mm -hmm. mm-hmm and 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 that to me that that final part about taking the art seriously um because i think at the end of the day the people that you're writing about are not only the artists but you yourself as the writer is an artist as well and that's not only because you are a filmmaker but also your 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 role as a historian um is is an is an artistic role hence why some people's writing ability is phenomenal and some you know it's it's not you know it's not as great but maybe their research you know the, their deep you know archival um uh, uh ability to 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 weave stories together can be you know one of their greatest assets and so to me you 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 know you are you, you know, you, 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 Dr. Clodger and the Herald, you know what I'm saying? Like you, you out here and not only you are a chair of a department. So my goodness, Lord of, Lord bless you um, uh, for real. <laughs> so, um, and, and also your uh, comment here bring to mind this, this next question too is a good transition. And so one thing when Sunday comes makes clear is that there is a major difference between CCM contemporary Christian music and gospel music and specifically of the black variety here. Um, unless you're, I guess, Paula White trying to, you know, Africa, 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 you know, whatever. Uh, and and on a side note, it really makes me so annoyed that her church base is in Orlando, not far from or- the Orlando area where I grew up. But that's a whole nother story. Um, but as you take stock of the sonic landscape and see the popularity of things like, you know, Hillsong and Elevation Music and other CCM acts, you know, sometimes they're also bringing people who you would consider as gospel artists into their orbit. Hmm. I'm glad you could see me as, as I say this, uh, what slash who do you see ultimately as the future of gospel music? I know that's a lot, but I'm very much interested to know, you know, what your thoughts are about this back and forth, kind of like this volley, but also looking forward, like what is the future of gospel music as a genre? You
2: know, I don't know. Um, because to me, the future of gospel music is so intertwined with the question of the future of the black church Mm. and also the future of the music industry. And, um, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned something like Hillsong, because I also feel as if so many artists who are now music directors at these mega churches, Mm -hmm. um, which is actually a major source of income. Um, it's hard to it's hard to answer that question when the industry is just different, and so um, I can't think of anyone. I think if you asked me in nineteen ninety six, I would have said Kurt Franklin, right? Um, and not just because he was so huge, but because of, as a result of it's success and you know, Gospel Centric, which was a black-owned label, and you had Trinity Five Seven and it just um it's hard to it's hard to say. I mean, in a post versus moment, I've been watching a lot of like SWV interviews. Mm-hmm. Lord help me.
0: <laughs> and I've been
2: and I've been listening to Coco talk about the industry and this very question. It, And, you know, she's talking about A&R and and, um, it's interesting because I think we see record labels as oppressive and kind of are. But she was talking about a certain kind of, (laughs) I think, quality control Mm -hmm. that you used to have that's just different now. Um, I feel like sometimes when I hear people talk about gospel singers and performers, someone is like, Showing you a YouTube clip of somebody performing, like on—I <laughs> don't know—in their house, in their studio, and it's like they're hitting the right notes, mm-hmm. and we're watching them live on Instagram, and it's just so—it's so different. So, I—it's hard for me to really say um, what the future is. What I hope the future is is artistic innovation, spiritual depth, mm. and. Political engagement. Um, is it Lecrae? Am I saying that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, because of the book and because people kept asking me about the contemporary moment, yeah, uh, I, I, you know, I started listening to to him more, and, um, you know, there are a lot of there's some interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I just never been into <laughs> gospel. And and I know he would hate this term gospel rap. That's you know, yeah. but I can't say that has come a long ways from like the '80s because mm-hmm. it used to be some horrible like gospel rap, uh, gospel hip hop. Um, but you know, I mean, it's like I'm not as I'm not as familiar with that. But um, I, I mean, and there are great singers. Um, every just thing, everything seems so fragmented and disparate for me. Yeah. Um, who do you like?
1: Good question. Um, So, I would say uh, Jonathan McReynolds, I like. He's, he's done some really good, uh, good music. Um, Actually, he was on, um, he was on a song on Common's most recent album that I really liked. I forget its name, but um, let me see. So, you know, what's interesting is like, in terms of people that are, I, that I can say are contemporary, right? But I think that the the shadow of Kirk Franklin is so, looms so large because he's still working. I think that is the part, like, I still remember driving from, well, not me literally driving, but me being in the passenger seat with my great aunt, uh, Mimi, dearly departed. And I kid you not, we listened. I forget what album it was, but we listened to one that got had Stomp uh, and Revolution on it. And we drove up from um, Palm Beach all the way up to, to uh, Dalzell, South Carolina, right outside of Sumter. Like, and I kid you not, I was, I was, as you know this term, I was a jit. I was a jit. Like, and I just remember we were just bumping, like, we were just going. But it's like, so much of the so much of the gospel music that I listen to, and this is not me like hearkening and and, and calling for a return to the seventies, eighties, or the nineties, but it's like, damn. But I'm like, damn. I'm like, or even the early two thousands, right? So um, that's why I think you know, trying to think about on the spot, like who who are some. Who are people who are artists that I can directly root in my generation? I'll say for folks who are like, uh, I guess, uh, 30 and, and 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 younger. Um, yeah, so I'll just say, honestly, Jonathan McReynolds is uh, someone who I, who I who I who I bump with a lot. Um, yeah, I mean, Kirk Franklin,
2: it's interesting that you say in the shadow of Kirk Franklin, um, because I also feel that way with someone like Fred Hammond who if he releases something i'm going to listen to it
0: mm-hmm. and
2: um or if i hear that marvin Winans was as was at a church and he was just singing a him i'm going to go listen to that mm-hmm. like there you know so it's, it's um it's interesting but you know kurt franklin the magnitude of his impact and the deep love that people had for him is really Hard, but necessary mm-hmm. to convey. Um, and when his debut came out, it was like a seismic shift. Mm. And for me, 94 is a transitional year in gospel music. And that's why I ended the book really in 94. Uh, BB and CC broke up. Mm-hmm after having three like consecutive gold and platinum albums, something that gospel artists just didn't do. Right. Um, Sounds of Blackness came out with their second album. Fred Hammond, I think, officially left commission that year. And Kirk Franklin's debut, which came out in 1993, was just storming the charts.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: storming the gospel charts. Then it was crossing over. And... That wasn't new, you know. In some ways, you know, that crossover success. I mean, like BB and CeCe had had number one R and B songs, "Addictive mm-hmm. Love," having, you know, kind of celebrity status. Their best friend is Whitney Houston, who literally in the late eighties, it was not uncommon to go to one of their concerts and she would be singing back background. But the thing about Kurt Franklin that I distinctively remember and was so special. Um, was that black church people also claimed him as their own? Mm. It's, it's you know it was it was like the bling not the bling bling era of gospel, and, but it was a TDJ. Mo- it was that moment where I think gospel folks wanted somebody big too. Mm-hmm. So Kirk was unique in that he didn't just cross over because that's not the most important part of the story. I right. mean. What people don't often talk about that first album is it didn't immediately cross over, and part of the reason it got on the charts was a little crossover. But so many gospel people were buying that album in you know Circuit City, mm-hmm. um, called a you know an old I was store Circuit, say, City. Circuit City, um, Coconuts. You know, um, you know they were buying that album and like. People were so proud and I feel that's not to say there wasn't criticism, but they could claim him Mm -hmm. as their own. He had come through Gospel Music Workshop of America. Um, He didn't come through like BB and CC, PTL.
0: You know what I mean? Um,
2: He was like he was like your own. And my graduation, you know, they sung silver and gold. You could not go to a church without somebody, you know, doing the reason why we sing. So Mm -hmm. that little kid who always did the Martin Luther King speech on MLK Day, (laughs) he was going. He was going. Somebody asked the question. You know, I mean, everybody. It was it was a cultural phenomenon, and in some ways, it was that combination of kind of like the. The crossover success of the Winans and the Clark sisters and BBNCC and combined with like the phenomena, the the kind of the out of this world popularity of John P. Key. Mm. When John P. Key would come out with an album from basically the late 89 and 93, if you didn't get to that mom and pop store, <laughs> by noon on the day of the release because they didn't have a lot of, it wasn't a lot of CDs or tapes. You weren't going to get the album. And so Kirk had that kind of, um, feel and it made all of us. And I'm saying us as a person who in the book, he's not like my, I'm not, he's not the most, uh there are other artists who are more who who I like a lot more, who I was more fans of. I think when Kurt came, I was kind of leaving gospel a little bit,
0: mm-hmm.
2: but the impact, what it felt like, you felt like you were in a movement,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and that was from the first album. And then when What You Looking For came out, well, first of all, it
1: was the Christmas album in between. Look, them. that look. Look, and, look, that Christmas album. Oh my lord, goodness gracious. Right. So, yes.
2: And then Melody, when Melody, I, I can remember being in a locker room <laughs> with my teammates at Temple and hearing, like, you know, melodies from heaven, like people going crazy. And, you know, and at the same time, like, I got teammates who love Sounds of Blackness. Mm-hmm. Who, I mean, it, so it's very interesting. Like, gospel was very much a part of the everyday. And then, like, when it moved to God's property, Ooh. because he actually, you know, you went from huge in gospel. You got to have a Kurt Franklin album. And see, this is an important thing about gospel fans. And you have some artists who are critical of this. Like, okay, some people, you listen to gospel on the radio you may have recorded the gospel song from the radio on your cassette mm-hmm. you bought certain you purchased certain people but you know aretha franklin's amazing grace went gold in 1972 there was not another gold album by a gospel artist until 88 with bb and cc then take since 89 then the Winans. 90 with return. So I'm saying all of that to say, and then BB and CC again with um, different lifestyles, which went platinum. I'm saying all of that to say, I just mentioned like four albums two by the same people in the same family. Mm-hmm. That's how huge the whinings are, you know? And I feel like sometimes in this current moment, sometimes people forget that, but then Kirk came along and the album is just going up, you know, on the top of the charts And then Trinity Five Seven, then Yolanda, you know, who's always been big in gospel. So you had this moment from '94 to really 2000. That gospel is just Fred Hammond' first platinum album with pages, um, what chapters in the pages in the chapter I can never get that right. (laughs) But it was like it was so it was a great moment, and I was so happy for gospel artists. And I'm not trying to kind of fetishize sales, but it, it makes your life better. See, part of it is my uncle was in the music industry, you know, and, you know, his hits in, you know, What a Man. That song was a sample of one of his songs. Candy State and Young Hearts Run Free. B.B. King. I like the little life that I sing about. Uh, my cousin, Jackie Moore, Precious Precious. That was a gold album. But I know what life is like, too, when you don't sell. Mm-hmm. And I know, so for people to sell and be able to tour and be able to support themselves. And as a result, what you saw with Kirk is constantly just pushing the art forward, you know. And um, it was like, it was amazing and it was cool. And he went from then you could see him on MTV, like Stomp was played on MTV. And so that was like, you know, it reminded me of a time, I never forget, I used to, I saw BB and Cece's uh, Lost Without You playing on Guiding Light, one of the stories, mm-hmm. like, you know, in a part that, you know, they shouldn't be playing a gospel song. <laughs> but it was also what people would accuse them of was this lyrical ambiguity
0: mm.
2: that they made these songs where they just said he or she or this and that, and they wrote differently. And that was cool. That was some of the criticism of Andre Crouch but you know Kirk is like Jesus should love me so it's so i mean like it it just was church
0: mm-hmm.
2: and then you had all of these people in the in the in the secular world and that's always with gospel artists whether it's you know Quincy Jones asking Andre Crouch like hook me up with color purple it's always that with gospel artists and so um yeah i you know i've, I've said too much but like those moments we have to really like Capture and here's the thing about Kurt Franklin, those are our moments
0: mm-hmm. exactly.
2: If he played, if he played the BET Awards, everybody gonna know that song. Yep, it may be different at the Grammys. Mm-hmm. I, our this is the way I look at it, and I talk about this in the book Michael Jackson's home going service Oof. soon and very soon. Andre Crouch. Whitney Houston's homegoing service. Marvin Winans, mm-hmm. Let the church same man, written by Andre Crouch. So, gospel music is central to what we do. Yep. It is is a central it's a central component of the culture. Um and yeah, so I you know, we didn't you didn't ask me that question, but one of the reasons I had stopped in Kirk with 94 cuz I knew I had to talk about Kirk Franklin. (laughs) I also knew I didn't want to talk about the internet and reality show. So I knew like, I didn't want to like go into Mary Mary too much. So I was very intentional because it's just with reality shows and all of that, it's just something else. But I would just say we are, I wrote for people who after getting off a long days, work hard days, work will turn on the radio And we'll hear juveniles back that thing up and then Donnie McClurkins, we
1: fall down and not skip a beat. Amen. Amen. Ah! See, I love that because, and I say that because there have been many nights in the club where, you know, Stomp will come on a revolution and everybody, you can be drunk as a skunk. Look, I'll tell them myself you can be drunk as a skunk but once skunk come on once revolution come on come on or or my actual favorite kirk in the uh uh and and I think it was I forget I forget who can never remember I'm looking at it right now but riverside that is my jam. Whenever when I think about right, when, when I'm whenever I'm writing, that's a song that when it comes on, it reminds me, right? I'm thinking about Harriet Tubman. I'm thinking about Owen a judge. I'm thinking about, you know, all the revolutionary runaways who who and those who are not able to get away. I think about them when I think about Riverside. Um, but also in the last year and a half, I've I, I don't know uh there so there's a version of Melodies of Heaven, a skate remix. That that's actually my preferred version of Melodies Uh from Heaven because I'm like, like, it's just so somber, but it's still it's still like gives you kind of hype, but in kind of like a lo-fi kind of mode. Um, so look, I you know, so so you've kind of uh, answered a little bit of you know some of some of the the next questions, but I want to move up a little bit and ask, what was the funnest part about writing when Sunday comes?
2: The travel, mm. um, the moment of discovery that you get when traveling and going into the archive, and remember the archive can be for me could be a church, exactly, yeah. Um, and yeah, the moment of discovery. Um, so I was in Detroit in June of 2018, and I'm so glad I didn't know. I knew that Aretha Franklin was sick, but I didn't know the extent because she is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end for me.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: uh, I went to uh, Bethel Baptist Church, CL Franklin's church, her dad's church, and so many other churches in Detroit, you know, gated closed mm-hmm. you know you can't just walk in there the door was open and um, i kept walking around the church <laughs> and somebody came out of the church and they said hey sister come on in and i didn't want to because i had a funkadelic shirt on that in the back it said Free your mind, your ass will follow me. I'm not gonna. I do have some home training, so I'm not about to go into church with that shirt on. And it's around one o'clock or something because when I I hit the streets early, Mm -hmm. and um, he said, Oh, you know, come on, you don't have somebody giving you a heart. So I I went into the church, and man, the spirit of that church. Mm. And to see those pictures of Aretha Franklin and Dr. King, And so I that was um that was that's so fun for me. Earlier that day, or really late that night, the day before, um, a dear friend of mine picked me up and it's like pitch black. <laughs> Detroit. You know, I got my camera and um I hit uh hit King Solomon Church. That's where the first Gospel music workshop was held, and I took pictures. So, I love, fun for me is also taking pictures of these spaces. Mm-hmm. So, I took a lot of the pictures. The the pictures um, that are in the book, because once one thing, one challenge was Getty's. Yep, <laughs> man, they like arm and a leg, yep. you know. So, those pictures are like five hundred dollars a pop. Yep. So, I never forget. I'm complaining, and my 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 colleague Kevin was like, <laughs> Adrena just Shoot pictures yourself, and so I became obsessed with taking pictures of like uh street
0: mm-hmm. names,
2: you know, and they have been named for gospel artists. And so, but that's the funnest part for me, just like that, that, that Detroit experience at Bethel. And I just sat in the sit down, you know, and sat in the pew, and I thought about. James Cleveland being there and the training that he provided. Yep. I thought about, you know, the Republic of new Africa and, and some of the black nationalist stuff yeah. that uh, organizations. Um, but I thought about 1987 when she recorded uh, that album with Thomas Whitfield and just to be there and just to sit there. And so I, it was amazing. And that next, you know, I left there And I walked from Bethel to Shrine of the Madonna. And then I walked from there to Motown.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And then what became very clear to me is that all of this is in walking distance. (laughs) So what emerges out of that moment are sounds that are shaping each other.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. So... You know, they all are emerging from this space. And then I hit God God's World, which is a black owned record store that's right across the street from um Um Bishop Sherrod's I never say his name, Bishop Sheard. Uh you know, his church. Um and I walk over there just to get a <laughs> to get a picture of uh Karen Clark's uh, parking spot. It is.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you
2: know, that's, that's what I care about now. And being in God's world, this guy, Larry Robinson, who's really close to the owner of um, Sound of Gospel, which the Clark sisters recorded on, but also they own, he owned Westbound Records. And that was like Ohio Players, um, Parliament Funkadelic. And I was, like, asking him questions. So he tells me stories. Of, yeah. Before they made it big, Commission used to <laughs> practice in one of my stores. Wow. And he used to, at one point, he, he owned, like, a lot of, you know, there were a lot of uh, different stores. And then I asked him questions about, like, the Clark sisters. Mm-hmm. He's like, um, yeah, turn your recorder off. Oh, know, and it wasn't bad, bad. I had these questions about, which the film on them kind of touched on a little bit. Okay. The questions about you know, record contracts mm-hmm. and all of these things that I had heard. And by the time he finished, I knew about so many things, from Doctor Maddie Clark, right. uh, Maddie Moss Clark, to George Clinton, Whew. and. And most of it, I, you know, some of it I was able to quickly, because I had somebody else with me to kind of write it down. But what I also learned was the most important lesson was not in a quote. He was like, sit here and let me tell you. See, you have to feel the story. You have to know the story. You have to, and you have to gain a respect for the story. And um, that's what he gave me. So like, sometimes I was, so there are certain things, you know, like even watching a movie, I was like, no, that's different than what I heard. But, um, but that's not, it's some, so what you learn too is like, that's some of the things we think are important are not important. Mm -hmm. Some things, some of the things that you learn is the conditions under which people make this music. You can never fully, uh, explain or communicate. Um, Or make public. Some things you don't want to make public. Right. Some things aren't for a kind of mass consumption where we question the business acumen of certain people. Um, That's one of the things I didn't like about some of the conversation on social media doing the Clark Sisters, that movie about publishing rights and stuff. I'll just say this. None of those conversations people... those conversations were off because it's so much of that story that wasn't told. And we don't know. Right. Uh, And I think too, one of the things uh, about having a family member that's kind of like was in the industry, I sometimes think about, okay, what do you treat that artist that you're talking about? Just how you would treat your uncle if you was writing about him. Mm. Uh, And so that also indicates that sometimes you can be a little too close to the story, yeah. but yeah, the process of just traveling, going to Nashville, eating that hot look, chicken.
1: Look, look, <laughs> now, did you, look, having a hot chicken next to the, to, to the uh, old smoky, uh, uh distillery. Yeah. Look.
2: Yeah. You know, so it was like the travel hot chicken Okay. I'm going to go by all of these studios where Shirley Caesar recorded, even if they're closed now, like it, it don't, it doesn't matter because I'm going to get a sense of, you know, uh, so that, that summer, I just took road trips. Mm -hmm. Like I, so I like left Charlottesville and I just, I just drove. Uh, then I think I parked in, um, yeah, I just was driving and then I flew somewhere like I got to Chicago, then Detroit. Uh, but it was just like, yeah, it's always, you know, going to Shirley Caesar's church. Like, you know, just seeing those dynamics, um, John Piquet. Um, So that was the fun part. Just, you know, kind of immersing myself in. Um, in the culture, going to record stores, um, trying to find. Stores. Once you get the address mm-hmm. and you find out that the black-owned store is no longer at that spot, but it's been replaced by a hipster store. Mm. So also during this process, you know, I've seen three, maybe there were six black-owned gospel shops in the country. Wow. You know, I think now probably about three of them closed, and so it's like. But that 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 was like fun. I, I just enjoyed the travel. I enjoyed. um the point of discovery. I I enjoyed that rush that you get when you go into an archive and that archivist brings you that box that you There it goes. There it goes. <laughs> you bought it three days and you look at it and your heart starts pounding because it's even more in there yep. than you thought was in there. So I had experience where they say, Oh, yeah, baby, we got two files and then you get there. Um And it's like two boxes Mm -hmm. instead. So for me, like that's, that was the fun part. Immersing myself in the process of discovery. Like that was so, um, that was like an eating (laughs) (laughs) on those trips, man. Thank, thank God, you know, like, you know, yeah. So my, the, the spaces that I like, favorite places were definitely Detroit, uh, Chicago, um, Nashville and Oakland. Um, so like when I went to Oakland, you know, and by that point, Edwin Hawkins had passed. Mm. So um, like they rent Walter Hawkins. I think they rent that church out. So it's also dealing with the empty space, the, the things that don't exist
1: anymore. Yeah.
2: Um, but I, I went to Paramount where, you know, that gospel work you know, gospel movie was made and, the, you know, the iconic Clark sisters performance of is my living in vain. And just seeing that space was just like really powerful and meaningful for me. Um, and yeah, just, um, and I think like one time when I was in Oakland, actually I made a film. Uh, well, one of my students was there and she did, the, she did a film on um, Reese records. And so it's funny that film is now played at, Various film festivals. She did a really good job, but I was actually screening another film when that was um, when I was just doing the research. Wow. And so, yeah, it was um, it was cool.
1: Outstanding, outstanding. And so, uh, with one of your students, that's actually a great way to pivot to one of our final questions here on this marathon run of an interview that we Enough. we just we just vibe. Cool. We look, you cool. I'm. Cool. I hope you got good editing software. no nah, we. Th- this is gonna be. This is gonna be good. Uh, so. I mentioned earlier that you are a prolific scholar, but what our listeners should also learn from our interview is that you are also an incredibly dynamic and kind teacher. But Adam, how would you know that if you've never stepped foot a day of your life in Charlottesville, Virginia? Well, shout out to the homies, Allison Mitchell, Kiara Price, and Malcolm Cameron, because I know y'all listening. And thank y'all for 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 talking up uh, Dr. Harold here uh, on today. So, how are the musical artists and big concepts slash themes and when Sunday comes reflected in your classroom teaching at UVA and the broader publics that you write for, including my mother?
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh- You know, teaching is the most important thing that I do, and um, I would have never survived in academia uh, without teaching uh, and without that connection uh, with students. Um, I've, in my 17 years at the University of Virginia, I've taught a variety of courses from intro to African American and African studies um, to... Of uh, course, I teach called Black Fire on the history of African Americans at UVA, and of course, From Motown to Hip Hop, which I started teaching in 2010. And um, that course was supposed to have 30 students. <laughs> and it ended up with, uh, I think, I ended up letting like sit 70 in. Damn. And then um, I taught a variation of the course in 2013 called The Sounds of Blackness, and it had 144 students and like 141 were African-American
1: Wow,
2: (laughs) or Black, I should say. And um, so music is very much a part of my teaching, and it is in all of my classes. So, for example, in my intro to uh, African-American studies, we spent... (laughs) almost three weeks on Du Bois' the Souls of Black Folk. And I teach it as a foundational text in Black Studies. And so the first half, you know, what does it mean to be a problem? And we think about that in terms of Africana philosophy. Um, we, you know, I have, we, t- we talk about um, the meaning of progress. Um, that's a section in sociology. And Then we have a section where we talk about Booker T. Washington. W.B. Du Bois and that debate but also thinking about political science so i may have them read some Adolf Reed or you know um Oliver Cox's um stuff mm-hmm. on Booker T Washington but then we focus on you know of the sorrow songs yep. and we think about that as a foundational text in terms of black um uh, music criticism ethnomusicology so they read that along with probably something from like Greg Tate or Daphne Brooks, mm-hmm. uh, always a Mary Baraka's blues people, usually the introduction to that. Um, and um, thinking about music. So music is intertwined in all of this, but my Motown and hip hop class explores the evolution of African-American, you know, popular music from the sixties to the present. And, um, I try to use music to get students to think about Black studies as a discipline, uh, as an intellectual project. Um, and uh, so, yeah, music is, all of these things are sort of integrated into uh, my teaching. Um, it's always important for me that students leave with an understanding of Black studies as a discipline, its history. Um but also just to, to make sure that I always demonstrate and illustrate and illuminate um, the fullness of of, of, of African humanity. Mm. And um, to get them to understand that, that, that Black studies or to understand the distinction between Black studies and the study of Black people. Mm. And um, music is a way to get them to think about these things, to think about intertextuality, to think about how... Generations are always talking to each other and with each other um, uh, to think about the sampling that always goes on in black intellectual life. And uh, these classes have been just a space too where we build community, where we laugh, um, where they try to make me listen to stuff I don't want to listen to. (laughs) Where they see me get excited about people like Earl Simmons that they don't ever think I should I would get excited about, Mm -hmm. Um, and so it just you know these classes just became hugely um, hugely uh, popular. But um, I'm I'm committed to teaching. I'm committed to um, helping students uh, move into various aspects of. um, I'm into helping students kind of discover their voice or develop their voice. Um, from 2012 to 2019, I was over the distinguished majors program in AAS and black studies. And so I was really, um, interested in finding students who were, who wanted to go to grad school and wanted to, you know, have a career in academia. Uh, so it's, it's kind of interesting. The first class that I had, um, or DMP, DMP group, um, in 2012, uh, one of them um, just you know finished from UPenn last year, and so you're always really nervous about you know you want them to get jobs. And she, her way of telling me that she had gotten a job was like she emailed me and she was like, "Yo, what's up, colleague?" <laughs> <laughs> she got a job at UVA in the uh, in the cur in in the School of Education, mm-hmm. and so um, yeah. But I'm I'm just really um, yeah I'm committed to. Uh, teaching. I'm really committed to undergraduate training too. I I need that. I mean, I like my graduate students, don't get me wrong, but, um, um, yeah, I, I have, I teach these really, you know, pretty big courses at UVA. And so it's always about teaching, but connecting the students to other people and really building, um, really building community. So, um, I think that shows in my work too. I'm always trying to community is important to me, um, to, To write about it, but to also create it in a process of um, art making,
0: Mm -hmm. you
2: know, in the process of making things to, like, create community. And so the idea is, like, um, that these students will build community in the classroom, you know, so it doesn't surprise me, like, when I see without me even saying anything, my former student, you know, JT Wrong helping another student like they all like know me. each other like so like so the student that I just told you about who got this job uh who's going to be an assistant professor at UVA um her first year Adam Gittichu was her like peer advisor wow you know, so you know like Adam is a former student of mine so um for real yeah, God, yeah. yeah okay yeah so i mean like like Adam and um yeah, Adam and JT. So Adam graduated a year after JT. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and you know Adam has always been like a boss. Um, <laughs> you know, I remember one time I couldn't find my Black Reconstruction copy, mm-hmm. copy of Black Reconstruction. I remember like <laughs> walking over because I, I, don't know, was I not texting or something? I should have been like in two thousand eight, but I don't know. Maybe I lost my phone. And she lives on the lawn, mm-hmm. and knocking on the door and saying "Gabario," you know. So Adam is all yeah. Adam was always like on another level, but I like to think about that, like that genealogy. And so, um, you know, Adam and Wintry. And so, like when Wintry told me she got the job here, Adam was the first person I text. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, so that's extremely, you know, important for me. And it's important, like people like Kiara, that they know about people like Adam. Mm-hmm. And it's it, it's understanding, like your job is to create community, you know. So that's even like when we're doing the films and stuff, like it's about it's about it's about art making, but it's also about community. And so for me, like teaching, yeah, it's the classroom, and that's extremely important. Like at the end of the day, that's every Tuesday and Thursday for an hour and a half or hour and fifteen minutes you have a chance to shape how people view the world and you have an opportunity to have people shape how you view the world. So like teaching is I don't compromise with that. Mm -hmm. That's not, that's not optional. Uh, You know, that's the number one priority. Um, And so, yeah, you just constantly creating community. So in some ways I think, And it gives me such pleasure and joy. So I think even like when I think about the films that I've done with Kevin, a lot of it is about whether it's on the history of Black studies, whether it's on the story of Sly Stone coming to UVA in 73. It's a lot about is kind of recreating that effective dimension of my experience.
1: Yeah. Goodness gracious. See, see... Y'all see, I told y'all, I see y'all know whenever we get someone in, in the seat for new books in African American studies with me and everyone else on the channel, you know, they're going to bring that black fire because she's, uh, she's at UVA. So we already know Dr. Harold and Dr. Harold is from Duval. She's from Duval County too. Jacksonville, if you know, you know what I'm saying? So Dr. Harold, this is our final question. And so it, we're going to get it out on the fun one. So, you know, we're going to return to, to, the, to the process a little bit. So I love asking my favorite historians and writers about their, their own workspace. So if you had all the money in the world, money wasn't a thing, and you needed to build your own writing, reading, and thinking space, what would it look like? What would it smell like? What art would you get? And what is playing in the background? Paint the picture for the people, Professor. (laughs) It would be
0: uh,
2: a lot of wood, uh, two-story, books everywhere, earthy colors, um, multiple offices for other artists and writers to be in that space, Mm -hmm. studio space, um miles davis nefertiti is probably playing uh, you can get some coffee though i don't like coffee
0: okay <laughs> um
2: it kind of looks like a dale's place i think from uh moesha <laughs> <laughs> um you know i've always wanted like a book you know what it would be like mm-mm. I'm sorry, this is this. It's not poetic right now, but it would be like Sankofa in D.C.
1: Ooh, yes, yes, so yes. So it would
2: be a bookstore, art space, um, so a lab where people want to um, show a film or play their music. Because in my mind, everything that I'm involved in eventually will come together. Mm-hmm. You know, so... Um, yeah, that's what it would look like. It would, um, yeah, it would be kind of, it would be like a art open art space. Um, some of that modernistic furniture. Uh, I like that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, every maybe every other Saturday, you could um, we screen a film. You can listen to some poetry. Um, so it would be a, a space open for artists, artist talks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. like. So I guess it's like Sankofa meets the Astagate spot meets Moesha.
1: <laughs> Look, that's lovely.
2: We on, on SWV singing in the background hey, though. Hey. I'm, I'm like kind of obsessed with that right
0: now. There I'm, I'm, I'm is. It.
1: <laughs> well, hey, Dr. Harold, y'all, this has been an amazing experience to talk with someone who... I consider Kendrick because we both Florida people, you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it's just a lovely and amazing that, y'all, we've had the amazing opportunity to chat with Dr. Claudrina and Harold, author of When Sunday Comes, Gospel Music in the Soul and Hip Hop Eras. And this amazing book was published by our friends at the University of Illinois Press. And so, you know, it, please, y'all, go get this book. Please go get it today and whenever y'all listen to this interview. And if y'all like this podcast episode, please rate us and review us wherever you get your podcast. And so this is your host, Adam McNeil of New Books in African American Studies. I believe this is episode number 86. And so with no matter the number, we, 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 we got it done. And I hope that y'all enjoy it because this has been a labor of love. And Dr. Harold, it has been an amazing opportunity to chat with you, not only today, but as we say in the church, on today. (laughs) Because as we (laughs) saw today, it is interview time in the sanctuary. And so, (laughs) y'all, until next time, New Books and African-American Studies, Adam McNeil, over and out.